Hey, this is Sandy. And Randy. And we're here on AT Corner. Being an athletic trainer comes with ups and downs, and we're here to showcase them all. Join us as we share our world in sports medicine. Welcome to AT Corner. For today's episode, we are talking about a personal favorite of mine. Something that I can go on and on about, so we'll try not to do that for this show. Actually, I think it's going to be a short and sweet episode. I, I did my best to have some self-control and not make it too boring. So what are we going to talk about? We're talking about gait. This is one of the most important reasons about why I fell in love with working with runners is learning about biomechanics and gait. So I figured, hey, let's do a show on it. Let's do it. So our goals for today's show is we're going to review kinetics and kinematics. We're going to describe how kinetics contribute to running injury and then also how kinematics contribute to running injury. And then we're going to describe interventions to correct deficiencies in both of those. Really fast, can you tell me the difference between kinetics and kinematics? Yes. Yeah, so for kinetics, basically that's just the study of forces that contribute to motion. So that's like uh, the biggest example are ground reaction forces. And then kinematics are the study of motion without regard to the force that produces those motions. Okay. So how I broke it down on my, my little notes here. Are, I want to talk about kinetics first. And the biggest thing that always pops up in the literature are about ground reaction forces, right? When you step or when you run, the ground pushes back at you. We all kind of have that idea of what ground reaction forces are. And in particular, if you look at the literature, the biggest area to look at when you talk about ground reaction forces are those first few moments when your foot hits the ground. So as you load your lower limb, how quickly does that load transfer to the muscles and the bones? And that is termed loading rate, and then it goes up to the first impact peak. So as you're running, if you have a heel strike, you have two peaks, right? So the peak of when the foot hits the ground, and then when you push off. And this is relevant because... Because if your lower limb's loaded too quickly, that means there's a high amount of force being applied to the bones and to the muscles, it can put a lot of undue stress. And a lot of the studies that are out there, there are great retrospective studies that have looked at those who have bone stress injuries tend to have a higher loading rate. So their bones are being loaded quicker than someone who doesn't have a bone stress injury. And now there are starting to come out with some prospective studies that are demonstrating those that have higher loading rates tend to just get injured more, not just bone injuries, also um, soft tissue injuries as well. And how are we measuring this? Is this something that I can do when I go back to my clinic? So unfortunately, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the interventions, this is not measuring this is not something readily available for the clinician. It's more for the lab. So if you have access to stuff um, that can measure these loading rates, which we'll talk a little bit more about, um, this could be a great indicator of an athlete that may be at risk. Because if you load tissue way too quickly with a high amount of force, it can't be absorbed properly. And that's when you start seeing things break down. All right. Well, why don't we start talking about things that we can change? Yes. And something that we can measure are kinematics. So there are different types of studies that have looked into what kind of kinematics. And the first one that we all know about is hip adduction during running. Right. So if your hips going more in adduction, right, you put a lot more strain on like the IT band or the patellofemoral joint. Excessive hip adduction while running, in particular during the stance phase, so that's when we're 
actually having the foot on the ground and we're loading it, progressing to get ready to push off, is supported by perspective and retrospective studies that if you have too much hip adduction, you're probably going to have injury. And that's for, I believe it was um, IT band pain, Achilles pain, patellofemoral pain, and even everyone's favorite, medial tibial stress syndrome. So actually, this is something clinically applicable. So I actually assessed one of my performers who had a lot of hip adduction as she was walking, and she ended up having trochanteric bursitis on the outside of that hip. Yeah, absolutely. Like my examples were just basically from the knee down. But yeah, um, remember, the IT band goes all the way past the greater trochanter. So if you have something that's adding strain, it can affect the entire way. So that, that definitely makes sense. And the reason for these issues with hip adduction are if your hip's going more medial as you're putting weight to it, it can add a uh, more of a tibial bend to the medial side. So that's where you get that um, MTSS or stress fractures because that's usually where they tend to manifest at. Also, the IT band, right? We just talked about it adding more strain, which means it gets more compressed against the um, lateral femoral condyle. And then, like you said, the trochanteric uh, bursitis, right? You're adding tension. It's pushing against the bursa. Bursa gets irritated and gets inflamed and causes pain. And then that's frustrating because we really had to attack that treatment because it was getting re-inflamed as she was walking because of that hip adduction. Yeah, and that's the fun part when you talk about gait and you know biomechanics are a lot of our stuff, we only think about what they do in sport and how does how does their sport motions affect their injury. But we walk every day mm-hmm. outside of sports. Mm-hmm. It is the thing we most often do. It's how we get around. <laughs> exactly. It is how we get around. It's how we get from point A to point B, then we go to point C. But each time they take a step with poor biomechanics and poor motion and or uh, poor movement patterns, it's an added stress. So that that's why this is so fun to look at, at least for me. I'm Like I said, we're, I'm really nerdy here. <laughs> um, but you can affect something or you can make a change to what they do in daily living and affect the stress that the accumulated stress that they get. So the next area that, you know, you see most common in the literature is contralateral hip drop. And a lot of these other kinematics will kind of relate to hip ad, greater hip adduction. And they really are kind of connected and they do contribute to each other. So take contralateral hip drop, which has been supported in retrospective studies. So for those that already had Achilles pain or MTSS, they demonstrated a greater contralateral pelvic drop. So, you know, Trendelenburg, right? The reason that this can cause these issues and may be something that prospective studies may find later is if you have greater contralateral pelvic drop, that changes how the center of gravity is positioned during walking. So if you have a greater drop, your center of gravity is pushing one way. Well, your lower extremity has to adapt to keep you stable. One of those adaptations could be greater hip abduction. When you're talking about contralateral hip really fast, are you talking about the opposite hip of the injury? Or what do you mean by contralateral? So in that case, it'd be the opposite leg of the injury. So the idea of it is the injured leg's on the ground. The hip that's dropping is the leg that's in swing phase. So if my right leg was hurt, my right leg would be down. The contralateral pelvic drop would be coming from the left leg that's in swing. Got it. 
So that shift in how the center of gravity's position and where the ground reaction force vector is going through the body, it forces the body to compensate, and that could be greater hip adduction. So you can see that they are kind of related. You can correct contralateral pelvic drop, and then maybe that'll fix hip adduction as well. That's why we have to take a good history, take a good observation, and really do a good eval to determine what deficiencies you're looking at. Also, when you think about contralateral hip drop, you're adding strain to the IT band that's on the ground, the foot that's on the ground. So like I said, if it's your right foot on the ground and the left hip's dropping, that right IT band's like stretched even more. That can also pull the patella laterally as well, because there are some connections from the lateral patella to the IT band. So now you can see, oh, it could contribute to patellofemoral pain now. So something to keep in mind. Okay, so we know that there's a lot going on at the hip. What about the foot? Yeah, so foot, you know, is a big deal because that's the first thing that hits the ground and it really kind of starts everything off. And an area everyone likes to look at is a lack of dorsiflexion. And there is some support. It's very weak in retrospective studies that a decrease in ankle dorsiflexion can contribute to Achilles tendon pain. But some of the studies that have looked at dorsiflexion have also found that it could increase adductor activity, so hip adductor activity, which if you have too much hip adductor activity, you're going into too much hip adduction. So you can see that even though dorsiflexion itself hasn't really been a strong predictor of injury, it can add to another risk factor. Does that make sense? Yes. So I'm glad that made sense to you because I feel like I just ramble at times. Um, let me summarize it for you. So basically, if you have a lack of dorsiflexion, it might not be the dorsiflexion itself that's causing problems, but it's going up the chain to the hip that's causing more adduction, which we just talked about why that's problematic. Yeah, absolutely. So it kind of goes off the idea of the joint-by-joint -joint approach, and the ankle itself should be a mobile joint. Well, when, you're, when you have your foot hit the ground and when you're loading it, the mobile joints are there to help absorb force. Well, if your ankle doesn't move very well, it's going to try and move somewhere else. A stable joint is going to have to become mobile in that case. And with a lack of dorsiflexion, a compensation could be a dynamic valgus or increased hip adduction. Well, the knee is supposed to be a stable joint as you go through your gait cycle. If that doesn't happen and it becomes more mobile, that puts stress on the joint and the muscles around it. So if you see someone with a lack of dorsiflexion, you may want to look and see what's going on at their hip. Their adductors are probably overactive, which means they're pulling their hip into more adduction, which we've already talked about what happens when you have too much hip adduction. Another area where dorsiflexion could be related is increasing pronation. And this is seen in um, studies that look at eversion duration. So how long does your foot stay everted or pronated? As you're walking, you do want pronation. You need some of that to absorb force at the foot. But at a certain point, once you start going into your terminal stance and ready for push-off, your foot needs to... Become more rigid. Yeah, it needs to resupinate and become rigid because then your, your triceps psoriae, I wanted to use a fancy word, a.k.a. your calf, can do a push-off. And it has a nice lever to do that. Well, my thinking is here is, okay, if you stay in 
eversion too long and you're getting ready to push off and you still haven't supinated, well, now your plantar flexors are working even harder to try and propel you forward because they don't have something that's a rigid base to push off of. So now they're being less efficient. Now you're setting up those muscles to get injured later because of the accumulated load. Also with that um, increased pronation, as you pronate, the tibia is actually supposed to internally rotate because it has to stay with the talus. Because as you pronate, the talus is then going to internally rotate while your tibia has to follow that. Well, the tibia is going to internally rotate too much. And what do we know attaches to the tibia that is commonly injured in runners? The IT band. Exactly. So if the attachment of the IT band is now turning in more, it's going to add more stretch and could add more compression there. Sounds like a lot of this is going back to the IT band. <laughs> that Well, that there's a reason that's one of the more frequent injured structures in runners. Or walkers. Speed walker? Hey, that is intense. <laughs> By the way, I covered a speed walking event, and it is crazy. It's really cool, but I could not do that. My body would break down. And that's why you're the healthcare professional. <laughs> exactly. All right, so anyway, let's get back to what you can do clinically. My favorite part are interventions. <laughs> yeah, so for your interventions, I think the biggest thing that you need to start with when you look at it is how do you evaluate this? And when I first put the notes together for the show, I didn't include it, but Sandra brought up a good question this morning is like, okay, what do you do to analyze um, your patient's gait? And the first part we talked about is kinetics and like, you can't really like do that in the clinic because you don't have that type of equipment. Although there are little sensors now that are becoming pretty affordable and are applicable for clinicians. My favorite, I'm not associated with the company, so they can't say I'm advertising or I'm biased, but um, it was mentioned at NATA a lot, uh, the run scribe sensors. And basically the idea behind it is they would put it on the shoes of the athlete so they can actually track forces and some kinematics during an athlete's run so they didn't even have to be in a, a lab they could run around like whatever their trail is so now it's ecologically valid because it's in the environment that the athlete's running in so that technology is getting there just still a little bit of a ways for some clinicians and it, some settings it won't make sense but kinematics can be easily observed you don't even need cameras or anything like that just having someone in your clinic just walk back and forth. You can even have them jog or anything. You've done that, right? You've had them walk and observe their gait. Probably about, well, most of my lower extremity patients, but but I would say probably about 50% of my patients, I probably observe their gait. Absolutely. So you don't need fancy equipment just to at least look at their kinematics. And we've pointed out how many, kin, you know, how many different kinematic variables could predispose someone to injury that you can identify by your eye. If you wanted to get fancy, you could take out your iPhone or your iPad and film them. 2D gait analysis has been shown to be just as valid as 3D gait analysis when you're talking about measuring contralateral pelvic drop or increased hip adduction. So it is a valid method. So people who are like way into their EVP, that's an EVP way to analyze gait. And you don't need to spend $10,000 or more. So now that we've kind of analyzed, get it? Analyze how you analyze gait. 
the interventions that have been talked about, one of the best resources or the best interventions that I've seen is gate retraining. So actually teaching someone how to move differently. Um, very good. There's a lot of great literature at altering these kinematic variables and or these kinetic variables as well. Um, to do this, there's different ways you can do it. You can either increase their step rate, so how many steps they take. Um, you could change their foot strike pattern because most runners are rear foot strikers, which we know can contribute to high loading rates to the tibia, which predispose to injury. So you can change their foot strike pattern to more of a forefoot strike as opposed to being a rear foot striker, or you can even increase their step width. So maybe they're each step they have way too much hip adduction, so you have them step wider. The pro to doing this is it is effective. You know, you do see decreasing um, deficiencies in movement patterns, which could decrease their injury risk. The problem is it's really hard to do this from a time perspective because you kind of have to watch them run and cue them on how they're supposed to do that. And there's also on the flip side that, sure, the variables that cause injuries like tibial stress fractures, um, MTSS, stuff like that will go down. But if say if you switch someone to a forefoot strike, that's going to put a lot of load on the Achilles tendon and the calf musculature. So maybe we're just switching them from getting, okay, you won't get a stress fracture, but now you might have Achilles tendon pain. So you have to kind of weigh it in. Um, some of the literature out there doesn't recommend doing this as a preventive measure. Some of it kind of looks at, okay, if you have someone who's had way too many stress fractures or just keeps getting the same injury, this is something to look at. But again, that comes to clinical judgment and how comfortable you feel changing how someone runs. Another common intervention that we all do is you give them strength exercises, right? Everyone thinks that, oh, glutes are weak. And the interesting thing about a lot of these studies that have looked at these um, lower extremity injuries are hip strength doesn't predict um, someone getting injured. If you're already injured, so uh, I think the study that I read had those with patellofemoral pain, after they were injured, they had a decrease in hip strength, but not before the injury. So if someone's hurt, maybe we should be strengthening them, like doing glute strengthening exercises, but that's not going to be your prevention measure. I think what we really need to focus, and it kind of goes back to the gait retraining, but you don't have to do this as intense, is we need to use our motor learning techniques to teach these patients to move differently. And I know I talk about it probably way too much on the show, but teaching people how to move better is going to give you better results. A lot of these issues are motor control issues. They're not firing correctly. They're not having good um, timing of their firing. So again, NATA had a lot of great um, sessions on this that I probably took pages of notes on and was really into, but um, having people focus on different targets as they're exercising. So having, it's like, what I do is take, um, take just the simple step up exercise, right? Well, if someone's going single leg and having knee valgus, most people tell them like, oh, keep your knee out or something like that. But if you switch your wording to like, oh, keep, like for me, I say, keep tension on the band. So if I have a band pulling them into valgus, I say, keep tension on the band. That's cueing them to put their knee out without telling them. So now they actually learn the movement instead of just learn like, oh, I'm moving my knee out. It's having a more external focus. Yeah, it's having a more external focus. And it's 
teaching the athlete to correct it without you giving them that feedback to correct it. So now they're doing it on their own, which means they're learning. Well, that's the whole point of our rehab. That's what we want them to do. What we do in the clinic, we want them to take out into their life, into their sporting world. So if they've learned how to move without just constantly looking at their knee and moving it out, because that's not sports. How many times have you seen someone running down the football field, looking at their knee to keep it out? Yeah, zero. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't happen very often. They're probably going to get blown up on the play if they do that. So we're trying to teach people how to move without them consciously thinking about how they move. So, you know, they talk about that in ACL rehabs, but we can do this in overuse injury rehabs. It's something that I think we can get better at. So you guys, Randy did a ton of reading for this. And if you want, we just kind of brushed the surface of some of the stuff that you can really dive into. But if you want to do your own reading, we will have all the citations that Randy used on our website, which is down in the show notes and in description below. Also, if you really enjoyed this and want more in depth, please let us know. I figured, you know, I'll kind of keep it a little more entertaining and not so long winded. But like I said, I love talking about gate. I Anytime I can learn about it, um, I take that opportunity. So if you guys love stuff like this, please let us know. We can do another show on it or something like that. And we're also we're also just starting the conversation here. And we want to hear from you guys in our Facebook group. So head over to facebook.com slash group slash AT Corner Podcast so you can join the conversation and tell us what you do with Gate. Ooh, that is true. I would like to hear how... Other people go about looking at gait in their uh, in their clinic. Um, I'm still trying to work on implementing an actual preventative gait analysis thing, but I'm still working on my time management for that. How you know what can I do about it? But see, it it's on my mind thinking about it. And remember, podcasts come out only once, but people don't listen to them necessarily when they come out. So if you're listening to this like years into the future, head over to our Facebook page anyway and search in our episode discussions and join the conversation because it will bring the conversation back to the top of the group. Yeah, absolutely. And if anyone's used these, like in my example of the RunScribe sensors, if anyone's used them, I'd love to know to see how it's worked out for them or how they've implemented it because I heard it at NATA and I was amped for them. I I put it on my Christmas wish list, so I'm hoping one day I will buy them. So anyways, this is an education episode, and on this podcast, we actually split between education and story episodes. So next week, we'll be going over athletic training stories, and we're actually doing part two of off-the-clock stories. So we're talking more about times that people were out hiking, Um, I think we have some more wedding stories where people were out at a wedding and people got injured and they had to respond to injuries. So we're going to be sharing those stories in next episode. And then some upcoming episodes, if you guys want to join in and share your stories, you can send them over to atcornerds at gmail.com. Some of our upcoming topics are emergencies, CPR stories, being the first time certified, so anything memorable from that. And then also favorite or most memorable gifts you've received. Ooh, you know what? I have a I have a few good ones for that one. Yeah, athletic training is a thankless p- p- profession, so I think that it would be nice to bring some light to times that people were actually thanked. And it doesn't have to be a tangible gift. Yeah, sometimes sometimes the smallest gifts or even the like you said non-tangible ones are probably the best ones. A simple thank you tends to go a long way. Don't forget to share, rate and review this episode. 
awesome reviews will be shared on our podcast in future episodes. And also, we get really excited when we see a new review or um, an actual rating or anything like that. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys. We've we've had a lot of great feedback so far, so we just want to keep bringing it for you guys. Yeah, absolutely. You got anything else you want to add, Randy? Nope, that was perfect. Thank you for helping us showcase athletic training behind the tape. Bye.